This is the Pain Information Network, 41. Welcome back. Uh, today I'm going to talk about two kind of fun subjects. Uh, one fun in the sense that uh, we're going to play a little with this and try to get some answers that are organic, that come from the soul, that come from your heart. And it's about the CDC opioid guidelines in America. The Centers for Disease Control has stepped into the mud. They want to get into opioid guidelines, and they're going to make core, core recommendations. I'm not going to get into the committee that put this together yet. I want to get into it um, later because I want unbiased opinions to come to paininformation.com. Leave me a message. I'll read them all. And I really want to see your unfiltered response to what these guidelines are. Now, why is this important? Well, it's a ripple effect. They say this is mostly for primary care. This is mostly for people that uh, don't uh, have a lot of background or a lot of guidance with opioids and to try to keep patients safe because we now know in America 19,000, probably more people a year die from opioid-related uh, overdoses. Now, it, and as it's related to heroin, too, it's about 4,000-plus in the United States because a lot of times these uh, individuals that get uh, habituated or addicted on these uh, prescription pain medications can't get their hands on them due to cost or whatever, and so they just <clears throat> go to their friendly heroin dealer. And heroin in America is now getting laced with fentanyl, which is 100 times more potent than morphine. And it gives them a great high. It's a front row seat, but they die. So I think CDC wanted to get in here and get some thought leaders together, create this expert panel, and uh, come up with some guidelines. And I'm going to go through those with you because it can affect access to care. It really can't. What happens here could be mimicked in England. What happens here could be a standard in France. So we have to be really careful with these thing called, things called guidelines. Guidelines have specific definitions. And again, I don't want to bias anybody. I'm going to say what a guideline is later. It's not a rule. I'll tell you that's for sure. A guideline helps us understand a pathway, a direction. But when a prestigious organization such as the CDC comes up with guidelines, um, people take note, they listen, and sometimes they listen a little too hard and get a little too overreaching. We're also going to talk about chronification of pain. Now, this is really some groovy stuff. Chronification of pain can explain um, in its infancy, we're learning more and more, why some people have an acute pain incident and they get better. And some just don't get better and it turns into chronic pain. And chronic pain is why you're probably listening to this podcast and it's kind of interesting to understand some of the brain science that says, yeah, your pain's real and there is a real explanation. We can't just throw out these terms like chronic pain. Oh, it's pain over six weeks, six months, whatever you want to call it this week. Now, there are changes in brain chemistry and brain orientation uh, in the white matter and other parts of the brain and changes in the descending modulation of pain and these sort of things that are, uh, you know, they're, they're real snoozers. Um, you know, sometimes people start listening to this stuff and they hear crickets, but... 
the point is there's some people that this is going to make pretty darn intense sense to. So let's kind of get started with the CDC guidelines. Okay, these are the core recommendations. There's 12 of them. I'm going to start with number one. I'm going to read them, and I'm going to give you kind of my response. But, again, I don't want to introduce bias. I want to hear your response. And that's going to be fascinating for me. I'll be presenting this at a meeting at the end of the month. So I'm going to include your input uh, at this meeting, uh, this National Meeting of Physicians, because we are all, we're all thinking, too, what does this do to us? Does this tie our hands? Or if we practice differently, even as specialists, are we outside of standard of care? Can, can people scrutinize us more? Well, that's a big question mark. Okay, non-pharmacologic, non-drug therapy, and non-opioid pharmacologic therapy, drug therapy, they're preferred for chronic pain. Okay? Read again. Non-pharmacologic therapy and non-opioid pharmacologic therapy are preferred for chronic pain. Second part of that is opioid therapy should be considered only if expected benefits for both pain and function outweigh the risk to the patient. Well, we agree with that. <clears throat> Who wouldn't agree with that? That's uh, that that shouldn't even be in a guideline. It's like. The tip of the pin is connected to the hand of the physician that's connected to the arm, and it goes to the brain, and all those years of school should have, and experience, should have not only an emotional but an educated and a diagnostic uh, input to that prescription. The the tip of the pin can say so much. So why are 19,000 people a year dying? Well, it's complex. But you're right. We look at the risk-reward benefit, and we look at function. Pain is a description. It's not an entity. That's one of our rules, isn't it? Rule five is we want to improve function. See how I built these rules? Okay. Number two, before starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, establish treatment goals, including realistic goals for pain and function. Yeah. Those are the benchmarks, and I've talked about benchmarks for a long time. No one ever talks about that stuff. Even very experienced pain uh, providers, whom I respect tremendously, sometimes miss that with their patients, and that that's okay. I mean, they have other ways of probably finding a final and common pathway to success or to improvement. But benchmarks are easiest. Where are you going to be at three, six, nine, and 12 months? Okay, simple enough. Part of number two, <clears throat> providers should not initiate opioid therapy without consideration of how therapy will be discontinued if unsuccessful. That's a tough one to swallow. What is unsuccessful? If we know anything about pain and pain that becomes chronic and why we're going to talk about chronification of pain today is we know one thing. It's a snowflake. It's different to everybody. And what is unsuccessful? Well, I can tell you, I've made this mistake many, many times. And it happens to me to this very day, uh, 25 years into my career or more. Um, I look at somebody taking medication and I say, you know, doesn't seem to be doing you any good. Um, 
let, let's, let's try something else or let's go to something else or let's use an adjunctive therapy or something away from what they perceive is their opioid-based pain medication that they have become very used to. That's fine. They're very used to it. Well, is that habituation? No. Is that dependence? Maybe. Is that um, a kind of an insecurity if they don't have it? Maybe. So sometimes we do this agent shift. I call it an opioid stress test, but topic for another podcast. But I, I, I want to see how important that medication is. There's a lot of thought that goes into that because I first want to do no harm, and number two, I want to improve their function and quality of life. I don't want to scare them that I'm going to be erratic. So we do it gently, and we do it carefully. Sometimes our hand is forced because of patient behaviors. Sometimes our hand is forced because of misuse, abuse, or diversion. Sometimes our hand is forced because of red flags. But the point is this. We we aren't just going to be discontinuing therapy with opioids if we deem it unsuccessful. The mistakes I make are I make a change and... I didn't appreciate how much that medication was to that person. It might be psychological, it might be emotional, it might be very real. So I often have to come circle back around. This process of called op- opioid rotation is very real in a lot of practitioners' minds. In other words, the drug doesn't seem to be working as well. I don't necessarily want to go up on the dose. I'm just going to make an agent shift. I'm going to go to a different kind of drug in the same class, rule four, no thy meds. And that's not necessarily successful either. That's why the podcast uh, Oxycodone, I Love You, I Hate You is real to me. There are certain drugs put on a higher pedestal. It might be how it makes them feel. It might be what it does to them neurobiologically neurophysiologically, pharmacokinetically, excretion, elimination, whatever it is, it might have something to do with the onset. Faster onset opioids uh, give a higher uh, rate of elevation of dopamine in the uh, biological reward centers, topic for another podcast, but they can be more habituating or they can be more um, of value to the patient because they get better relief faster or they get kind of a bit of a rush and they know that drug is working and if they don't feel that they don't think the drug is working we, we see that often so the opioid rotation or the opioid stress test is what i call it is a is an option but that doesn't mean that the therapy was unsuccessful it just means we're we're pivoting we're just taking a little bit of a change in direction We still have your interest in mind. We're still very interested in patient safety. And put that above all else. What is in your best interest for the best possible outcome to reach those benchmarks over time? All right, here's the third part of the CDC opioid guideline number two. Providers should continue opioid therapy only if there is clinically meaningful improvement in pain and function that outweighs the risk to patient safety. Okay, that's fine. And tell me what clinically meaningful improvement is. 
Um, we all need that. We all need to understand that. That might be my benchmarks. Okay, I might set those benchmarks with the patient and understand that. But we aren't perfect. We're going to have good days and bad days. Acute pain happens chronically, and chronic pain happens acutely. Wrap your arms around that. It takes a little while. We'll bounce back to that in some other podcast. But pain tends to wax and wane, and it's an individual experience. Snowflakes. We'll talk about chronification of pain. So help me understand what clinically meaningful improvement in pain and function is. When we use these tools like a visual analog scale, 1 through 10, I can tell you, pain patients, I've looked at this, pain patients that are in the chronic category are between 7 and 10 about every visit, despite what we do. Occasionally we make a breakthrough, but it doesn't just keep trickling down as we start increasing the opioid load or dose, or it doesn't start trickling down as we do an injection. It just seems to stay. So the visual analog scale, I, I, I have it and I look at it, but I usually ignore it. I look at function. Well, what is function? Uh, function to an elderly individual might be just going to the grocery store, sitting in a car, taking less medication. Okay, all right, those are markers. But let's set some of those markers and let's let's figure them out before we say should continue opioid therapy only. There's a word. Okay, only. All right, let's go to number three. Before starting and periodically during opioid therapy, providers should discuss with patients known risks and realistic benefits of opioid therapy. All right, what is, uh, what is the known risks? I wish I had a crystal ball. Uh, I can tell you on the end of my addiction practice, uh, I hear very commonly, my addiction started with fill in the blank. It's usually uh, a, a prescription after a broken leg or something like this that followed another prescription, followed another prescription, or they're taking their brother's uh, medicine that broke his leg and they kind of like it and then they start seeking it. It kind of has a bizarre way of flowering. So what are the known risks? <clears throat> well, the known risks to any medication is their side effects. Any medication, that big, thick PDR, physician desk reference, lists about everything. And everybody has at least a little something when they take a medication. Opioids, yeah, we know the risk is habituation. But do we know Who's going to become a misuser, a diverter, or an addict? Not so easy to figure out. We can look for red flags and personality characteristics. We can look for historical elements. We can kind of look around the corner every once in a while. But then again, we have this concept of legitimate medical purpose or legitimate medical need. If somebody has a potential for opioid addiction risk or habituation seeking but they have a legitimate medical problem and they need uh, relief, it's humane and it's ethical to give them pain medication. So what am I discussing with them? Hey, I think, you know, you may be at risk to become an addict, but um, we're just going to watch your medicines real carefully, have you come in more often, more urine drug screens, more pill counts, that sort of stuff. I don't know. Realistic benefits. There's another word. 
What is realistic? Well, somebody that's had three back operations and continues to smoke, a big risk factor, um, has hardware in their back, bolts in their back. Well, what's a realistic benefit? I think improving function and quality of life. I think benchmarks, but I don't know what's realistic. Doing this as long as I have, everybody's different. This is the second part. Patient and provider responsibilities for managing therapy should be discussed. Yeah, okay. Well, we have opioid consents. Um, We have some risk documents that we can utilize. But even if they have those, it doesn't give me any indication if they're going to misuse, abuse, and divert. A lot of times these patient care um, agreements, I only get medicine from one uh, dispensing pharmacy, one physician, um, don't give us any guidance where or who uh, will divert, misuse, uh, or overdose. They don't give us any guidance. It's a tool, and it's utilized as a tool to help us understand the rules. And unfortunately, it's used against the patient when sometimes uh, addiction becomes the disease it is. And we don't just abandon people. What we do is we find a pathway to help them if they become habituated, addicted, and even misusers and abusers. They, they operate on emotion and not logic. They aren't necessarily bad people, and they are, it isn't necessarily a moral failing. Okay, really, really important concepts. So, you know, patient and provider responsibilities. Of course, I get it. I'm a physician. I have a lot of responsibility. The tip of the pen, I get that. But what about the patient? Is it a one-way street? Uh, are they going to do what they want? Are they going to take it as prescribed? I'm with them for a few minutes a month most of the time. I don't know. I ask them. We ask them. But we don't live with them. So I think if we tried to figure this one out, we'd want to have some other way or some other direction on our responsibility because we know what we've got to do and we know how we're going to keep people safe. But 19,000 people a year are dying. Maybe this needs a little more clarification. Number four, CDC Opioid guideline number four, when starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, providers should prescribe immediate release opioids. Those are called IR, immediate release, instead of extended release, long-acting ER slash LA or long-acting opioids. You'll see ER too, extended release. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, Remember, some of these people have had acute pain for a while, and they aren't opioid naive, uh, whereas a pharmacokinetically long-acting agent might be a lot more suitable for them, um, preference that they don't have uh, an opioid naivety. In other words, they've seen opioids before, they have a little bit of tolerance, that concept of tolerance. So this is a statement that um, limits some of my decision-making what I think might be in the best interest. Let's let's put it this way. Uh, somebody has had back pain. They've had a couple prescriptions of a short-acting opioid or whatever. They come to me now. 
but they can't sleep more than three hours a night. Well, I'm starting opioid therapy with them. Um, I am. And I want them to sleep a little better at night, so why, why not have them on a long-acting? Or why allow a short-acting opioid to give that rush to the brain that might initiate the early first markers of habituation and potential addiction, the uh, reward system being activated through dopamine? That's a question mark. All right, let's go to five. When opioids are started, providers should prescribe the lowest effective dosage. Duh. Use caution when prescribing opioids at any dosage. Duh. Implement additional precautions when increasing dosage to, and this is key, greater than 50 morphine milligram equivalents. That's MME per day. In other words, these drugs have a different potency or strength. And so um, morphine being the gold standard as one-to-one, some are more potent than morphine, some are less potent. So they're thinking that these providers out there are going to be making these uh, dosage calculations. Um, And here's the second part. And should generally avoid increasing dosage to greater than 90 morphine equivalents a day. That number is important, and it's going to be related to a work group that I'm going to talk about on another podcast after you've given me your feedback and guidance. So you'll, you'll understand these numbers a little bit more. But where did these magical numbers come from? Well, we do know that over 100 morphine equivalents, there's a pretty parallel uh, relationship, parallel and almost linear relationship to uh, events, uh, th- these events of overdose and potentially deaths. So, yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean our hands should be tied. Uh, there is a lot more involved uh, when you're talking about these drugs, and that's going to be number 11. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, what other medications they're taking? Uh, are they drinkers? I mean, all these other factors, their health concerns, their frailty, their large uh, people, their large volume of distribution. I mean, there's so many other things, including genetics. We have a way of getting rid of drugs. Uh, we have a way of utilizing drugs within our, uh, within our use cycle in the body. And it's influenced sometimes by genetics. That has to be a factor. To some people, you could take a a large amount of medications, and and you're sitting in the room with me, and you would never know. It's like a chronic alcoholic might have a blood level of 180 uh, milligrams per deciliter, uh, which is way over the legal limit of 0.08, and you can't even tell. You know, um, they might have a 300 level, and they're still functioning. Uh, I've seen 500 plus. That should be lethal, and they're doing great. Okay, so that last statement is going to need uh, a lot of scrutiny because it ties my hands. Uh, Many patients need more than that a day. What they didn't say here, and I'm going to uh, give them props for, is that you know if it's palliative care or cancer care, you know end of life care. Or if they have uh, a significant um, injury uh, or incident, 
it's okay to give more, but uh, it's not—it's it, just not easy for a primary care doc with four to five minutes in a room to make these calculations. Uh, it's not easy for me. It's, I've been using these all day, every day. Uh, take into factors um, and comorbidities and, and just say, okay, this has got to be safe. Um, and then the patient is, is miserable or they're, they're not getting the relief they need. It's, it's, more, it's complicated. Let's go to six. CDC opioid guideline six. Long-term opioid use often begins with treatment of acute pain. True. Providers should prescribe the lowest effective dose of immediate-release opioids and should prescribe no greater quantity than needed for the expected duration of pain, severe enough to require opioids. We learned in elementary school about run-on sentences. Um, I'm going to withhold my opinion on this because um, it's – uh, what I think one of the more controversial um, statements. It said providers should. And yeah, okay, we're going to provide the lowest effective dose. Who knows what's effective? Um, we have a good idea and experience may guide our hand, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Okay. All right. And this is the last part of it. Three or a few days usually will be sufficient for most non-traumatic pain not related to major surgery. Okay, um, there's a lot you can do with this. Have fun with it. Let me know what you think of that. Do you think your pain uh, might be uh, three and a half days? Uh, what if it's five? Um, you know, I think a lot of us have uh, broken our wrist and have uh, we've gotten hurt in the past, um, or else we've had an abdominal issue, or we've had a low back issue, and uh, acute pain happens chronically, and chronic pain happens acutely. A non-union of a clavicle. You're sitting there in the in the chair. You're doing great. No problem. You get up and move, it hurts. Uh, acute pain happens chronically, and chronic pain can happen acutely. So, you know, again, wrap your arms around that one, and you'll see how flawed this statement is. Number seven, evaluate the benefits and harms. Harms is a term we use for a potential bad outcome. Uh, with patients within one to four weeks of starting opioid therapy for chronic pain or dose escalation. Okay. Harms with patients within one to four weeks of starting opioid therapy. Well, that kind of contradicts some of the earlier statements because I think we were supposed to do that before we started. Evaluate the benefit and harms of continued therapy every three months or more frequently. How do you do that? How do you evaluate the benefit and harms? If benefits do not outweigh harms of continued opioid therapy, work with patients to reduce the opioid dosage. Again, let's let them hurt a little more. And to discontinue opioids. Why? Where are you headed? Um, Read and listen to seven um, a couple of times. All right? Because we're putting arbitrary time factors on a chronic illness or problem. And I'd hate to be sitting with an interstitial cystitis patient or somebody that has uh, um, some type of musculoskeletal problem like chronic pain pain in the uh, spine um, and and telling them, uh, you know, clock's ticking, and look down at your watch and say, well, you know, we got we to gotta talk about this. I'd, I'd hate that to be 
even in any of the equations of a reasonable provider making reasonable decisions and the tip of the pen doing what it should do. Number eight, before starting and periodically during continuation of opioid therapy, evaluate risk factors for opioid-related harms. It's becoming redundant. Okay, we, we kind of said that. Here's the second part. Incorporate strategies to mitigate risk, including considering offering naloxone, that reverses opioids. That's a drug that reverses op- opioids. It's also called Narcan. When factors that increase risk for opioid overdose, such as a history of overdose, history of substance use disorder, or higher opioid dosages greater than 50 MMEs are present. Well, okay, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with making that available. Um, there are systems that automatically inject it that actually talk to you and tell you how to do it. Uh, there, there are systems that you, you just uh, squirt that stuff up in the nose. It's rapidly absorbed. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, I, I've used naloxone for decades, and it is a fantastic drug. It saves lives. Heroin overdose saves lives. You throw them into immediate withdrawal, by the way. Um, but let's think about this. A reasonable provider at the tip of the pin would have already understood uh, the patient, according to the previous guidelines, and the potential red flags and risks. And if I'm giving a drug to reverse a problem I might expect anyway, am I really going to want to give them the drug in the first place? Is the risk-reward benefit in their favor? Because... If you've ever used naloxone, it it comes on like a truck. Uh, They immediately go into withdrawal. I used to, um, when I did emergency medicine, I used to put naloxone in an IV bag and drip it in slowly so I could titrate it. Another problem with naloxone is it only lasts a few minutes, like 20 minutes, whereas the duration of the opioid is often much longer. So they re-narcotize. They get the drug back. And they get sleepy, and you got to give them another dose and another risk of withdrawal. And it's no small thing. You know, some people that immediately uh, wake up from an overdose without a careful titration or without careful understanding of uh, naloxone, which isn't even mentioned, um, they can rapidly wake up. They can vomit and aspirate. That can kill them. They can uh, have an MI. They can have... uh, uh, an arrhythmia at least um, I mean there's a, a number of things that can happen and they become can become very co- uh, combative uh, so uh, maybe maybe it's good that we're we're carrying these uh, in the fire department and we're carrying these in police cars they they're they are well-trained people and they understand the street uh, but if you're uncomfortable and you think you've got to give somebody a life-saving drug because that person that you're writing a prescription to may overdose? Think. Tip of the pen. Nine, review the patient's history of controlled substance prescriptions using state prescription drug monitoring programs. No problem there. To determine whether the patient is receiving high opioid doses or dangerous combinations that put him or her at risk for overdose. You can't always tell on a PDMP. It only monitors certain controlled substances. Most of them do. And Missouri doesn't even have one. Um, So 
Okay, I I do this on every patient a number of times through the years. It, it depends on uh, the risk factor of the patient, and we also do criminal background checks. And we're just careful, um, and we look at all these things. But high risk for overdose. If you're saying a PDMP can tell us who's at high risk for overdose, I think you're reaching. Uh, I don't think it's predictive. Um, high High doses of dangerous combinations. Well, tell me what those are. I think I think I know where they are, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, second part: review the PDMP. Uh, that's a monitoring program. Data when starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, and periodically during opioid therapy for chronic pain, ranging from every prescription to every three months. Okay, I don't have I don't have much to say about that. I do, but I don't. Uh, Number 10, when prescribing opioids for chronic pain, use urine drug testing before starting opioid therapy. Um, really? Um, yeah, maybe. But what's the reward you're going to get uh, urine test, uh, drug testing a 88-year-old uh, who um, has cancer? What are you going to get? Maybe down the road it's okay. Um, what about if you know what they're taking and... Um, you know because they admitted to you that they're smoking marijuana and they're taking their friend's medicine. I mean, what are we going to get out of that? Well, it's documentation. Okay, I can live with that. Um, but they're saying you got to do it on everybody. These things are expensive, so they should, once again, be any medical test should be driven by an intellectual and uh, experiential uh, thought pattern of the individual that's going to be prescribing. I mean, experience. Okay, know what test you're, you're testing for. Know what the drug test says. It's useless to get a test if you don't know how to read it. That takes some education. For example, uh, I see somebody's taking oxycodone. I love you, I hate you. Oxycodone. And I get a drug test on them, and it comes back with oxycodone. Okay, all's good, right? Not necessarily. What's the metabolite? Okay, neuroxicodone is metabolite, and it's not there. Oh, well, what about the other metabolite? Where did this benzodiazepine come from? This is the point. Patients uh, can give you false readings on these drug screens by shaving the drug into the urine cup. They can, and I'm not disclosing anything. It's all over the Internet. Um they can um, take one pill just before they go in so they don't really have a, a metabolite. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on here. How about when somebody's taking hydrocodone and the metabolite comes back as hydromorphone? Well, that's dilaudid. Oh, my God, they're taking two different drugs. No, hydrocodone is metabolized to hydromorphone. You've got to know these drug screens. There should be some type of understanding, testing, CME or something to help those that don't deal with this stuff every day. Because they could just discharge you. Or they could be thinking, uh, well, okay, the oxycodone's there. Uh, here's another prescription. And it's all getting diverted. All right, consider urine drug testing at least annually to assess for prescribed medications as well as other controlled prescription drugs and illicit drugs. Um, okay, all right. I'll just I'll let that one sit. All right, here's 11. Okay, this is... This is key for all you people out there that like your Xanax, like your diazepam or Valium. Uh, 
you got to have that Ativan or you got to have that Clonopin. Rule four, no thymids. Um, CDC opioid guideline number 11. Providers should only pres- providers should avoid prescribing opioid pain medication for patients receiving benzodiazepines whenever possible. Now, I personally think that's exactly right because when we see these deaths, uh, they usually just don't have opioids in them. They usually have alcohol, barbiturates, really commonly benzodiazepines. And the way I see it is I'm driving into work, and I'm on the interstate, and the person to the right and the person to the left is on benzodiazepines. They're everywhere. They're way overprescribed. And I agree with the American Society of Addiction Medicine. In contemporary medicine, there's really very little place, if any, for benzodiazepines on a chronic or regular use basis. They're just trouble. What people don't realize with benzodiazepines is they interfere with sleep architecture. Oh, yeah, you think you're getting sleep? No, you're not. It's not good sleep. Um, it's uh, the bad kind of sleep, bad phase four sleep. Uh, the other thing they don't understand is it lowers serotonin. That's not good. And it actually can uh, increase pain to some degree. And they're wildly habituating, wildly. Um, I, I sometimes I can't get people off these. I bring it up. And it's an immediate confrontation. I've been on these for X. I take these because Y. If I don't have this, <laughs> you get the idea. Well, we have a lot of other alternative medications that are much safer than benzodiazepines. Now, benzodiazepines were developed because barbiturates uh, weren't very safe. And benzodiazepines are a leap ahead of barbiturates. But then again, we weren't handing out uh, candy back in those days of diazepam and the like. We weren't handing out opioids, and we weren't uh, handing out opioids, benzodiazepines, giving a lot of other potentially central nervous system uh, depressants, and then um, they go drink, uh, and it hasn't been assessed during a harms interview. Who who has, to, who has time to do a complete harms interview? Um, it's complicated. So, you know... That's part of these guidelines. I agree with harms interview, but um, we're going to need to to really look into what are the best core questions, the uh, best uh, uh, well, we call them expert, but uh, the best questions in a short period of time that maybe the nurse can do to identify potentially very um, dangerous behaviors, in particularly drinking uh, with benzodiazepines and opioids, or just taking a lot of benzodiazepines and opioids, uh, not being compliant with benzodiazepines and opioids. In other words, I'll take what I want. So I completely agree with number 11, but trying to get these people off their benzodiazepines, it's a rodeo. Okay, CDC opioid guideline number 12. Providers should offer or arrange evidence-based treatment. Okay, evidence-based treatment usually medication-assistant treatment with buprenorphine or methadone in combination with behavioral therapies for patients with opioid use disorder. Okay, completely agree with that. I think buprenorphine is a fantastic drug that saves lives. Methadone I'm not a, a big fan of, but it's, it's okay. It exists, um, and it is very, very important to have available. It's a uh, worldwide uh, necessary drug. Um, I agree. I agree. Uh, I 
choose buprenorphine over methadone to help people to have a drug problem. I, I agree with that. Where are they? The federal government um, allows a new buprenorphine prescriber. You have to have a special attachment on your DEA certificate that demonstrates you've taken a class, passed a test, and they say, you can do it, but you can only do 30. You're kidding me. 30 patients? Look, that clinic down the street that got all these people hooked has 200 patients go through there a day, and I can only take care of 30 of them? Well, yeah, but your second year, you can take care of 100. What? I I can hit that 100 mark in a week. Um, so it's carefully monitored. The, D, the DEA can come in, let me see your charts and that sort of thing. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I really don't. I wish we had a little more of that on some of these loose prescribers, but I can live with that. And methadone clinics are heavily regulated. So there aren't a lot of them out there. And get the methadone clinics. You know, they charge between 15 and X dollars a day. People have to come in. They have to develop a rapport over a long period of time before they even give them, you know, the, a, a pass for a weekend or something like that. Give them enough meds to get through. Um, they're, they're a tough thing to belong to for most most patients. They don't have the money. Um, and if they don't have the money, they're going to get the money some way. Um, and buprenorphine, it's not exactly cheap. Uh, and we have such restrictions. I, I understand it's changing. I, I think it will change. No one's in a hurry. Well, okay, let's, let's stop there. Um, and I want to go on next to chronification of pain. All right, this is this is a little easier. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of fun. Okay, so chronification of pain, we're going to call it shape shifting. It it's an acute event. You get some pain. All right, that pain in most people goes away, and it doesn't really matter what kind of pain it was. It alerted the organism, protected the organism, and they retreated and they got better. But some don't. Uh, some of the acute pain turns into chronic pain. And we, we know that. Um, we've been f- throwing around this terminology for years. Chronic pain. You know, well, it's greater than six months. It's greater than six weeks. It doesn't really matter. And we all know everybody's different. But it, it's a chronic part of their life. It, imp- it interferes with their function and quality of life. We now have seen through the magic of functional MRI and very sophisticated uh, brain imaging that there are structural components in the brain that develop a propensity toward chronic pain, some white matter and some of the descending uh, modulation uh, pathways like the dorsolateral funiculus, I assume, and, and some, of, some of this is dis- dysregulated. So... Ap Karen, he's an investigator, A-P-K-R-I-M, and Hashmi, A-H-A-S-H-M-I. They looked at back pain. And I, I listened to this lecture and was fascinated. Um, they looked at back pain, and they looked at the acute event, and they had two groups. One group got better, no problem. A uh, number of weeks, they're get, all getting better. Another group didn't get better. And they had pain at about a year. Well, if you image their brain, structures in their brain had changed. Um, 
they the circuitry had changed. They, it, the chronic pain had uh, grown into a different type of uh, circuitry, um, and the pa- acute pain region stayed stayed lit up. That brings up the brain and the mind relationship. Everybody's different, and these fantastic studies show us why. Because there's an emotional aspect of pain. There is a clinical aspect of pain. And when it becomes chronic, we can kind of see it now. It's like the backside of the moon. We're starting to understand that chronic pain is, is real. Chronic pain can exist um, in some people as they have a predisposition. And we're going to learn more about that. These descending modulary, uh, or modulation uh, dysregulation pathways, that the kind of the breaks on the spinal cord before the, pa- uh, the pain starts uh, coming towards the brain. We're going to talk more about these things. And this is just kind of like, let's put our toe in the water on this chronification of pain. But I do want you to understand that uh, chronic pain is real. It's not something that's just in your head, but it does involve emotional pathways. It involves uh, uh, your your white matter in particular, and it involves uh, some primitive pathways. So when I t- start talking about pain, addiction, and depression neurobiologically, I'm talking about chronic pain. Uh, I'm talking about addiction and depression are very similar and almost can't be distinguished. We're going to talk more about that when we talk about PAD or pain, addiction, and depression in a uh, in a, a neuro uh, in a neuro talk that uh, is is fun because um, that's going to lead me into ketamine. And then we're going to talk a little bit about ketamine and some uh, really important uh, things we can do with it. And that's going to be another talk. So, all right, I probably uh, got your brain talked uh, talked up and worked up and your ears talked off. So I'm going to step out, and I'll see you soon.